I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, no matter how we spin it, hitting 40 or 45 means you've reached middle age. And even without a major midlife crisis, entering your fifth decade can be difficult. Possibilities do narrow. Choices do get made. You do find yourself closer to death. And you do find yourself having either succeeded in some major life projects or failed in major life projects and then having to come to terms with that. And later, the great essayist Jeff Dyer joins us to talk about his latest book, which explores the idea of an artist's final work with many great detours through Nietzsche, Beethoven, and Jack Kerouac. The value of a life can't be assessed chronologically. That is to say, it's not like the only bit that matters is the last bit, because if that were the case, then, well, we would all arrange our lives very, very differently. And MIT philosopher and Jeff Dyer join us for a particularly philosophical hour of Life Examined that looks at midlife and the end of life. That's coming up. In a culture obsessed with youth and beauty, reaching your 40s or 50s can be a daunting milestone. No longer young, but not yet old, life's midpoint provides a moment to stop and assess. The expression midlife crisis became popular relatively recently, used to describe middle-aged men and women despondent with work, unhappy with relationships, and detached from family responsibilities. And while the stereotypical luxury car or affair may be misleading, middle age is a challenging time. So how does it feel to have a midlife crisis? Is the feeling different for men than for women? Are there any good news? Can midlife also open up a world of opportunities? Examining his own life at 40, MIT professor Kieran Setia turned to philosophy for answers to guide him through his own malaise and perceived failures. Setia is professor of philosophy in the Department of Linguistics and Philosophy at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and the author most recently of Midlife, A Philosophical Guide. Well, Kieran Setia, welcome to Life Examined. Thanks for having me. If we step back and think about what midlife is, or this idea of a midlife crisis, what, what is our conception of it? I think, what, how do we approach it when we kind of bring it up in conversation? Well, the midlife crisis is funny and unusual in that unlike most sort of cultural tropes, there is a definite point of origin. So in 1965, Canadian psychoanalyst Elliot Jacques publishes an essay called Death and the Midlife Crisis. And that is where the phrase originates. And it's about being in the middle of life and the proximity of death and the sense that you've sort of reached the crest of the hill and it's looking at best like a plateau, but maybe downhill from now. And This really sort of catches on in the 70s, this idea that midlife is a a time of of reckoning. And then the sort of potted history of what happens in the social sciences in the 90s and 2000s, a bunch of medical sociologists and others ask, you know, does this really happen? And there's a kind of wave of research debunking the idea that the midlife crisis is a real thing. That's to say that lots and lots of people have a period of crisis in midlife And then there's a second wave that happens in the early mid uh, sort of aughts in which economists working on life satisfaction and happiness discover that life satisfaction over the lifespan takes the form of a gently curving U. So it starts high in, in early adulthood, bottoms out in your 40s roughly, and then goes up again in older age. And that's something they see around the world for women and for men. 
And so while the idea of midlife as a time of acute crisis might be an exaggeration, there is some evidence that it's a period of relative malaise, a period of sort of relative difficulty. And, uh, you know, I think the stereotype remains the guy buying a Ferrari and leaving his wife. And uh, that may not be uh, accurate or advisable, but there, there is something to the idea that midlife is especially challenging for us. Talk to me about your own experience with this. I mean, I'm sure that the writing had to come out of thoughts, feelings, experiences that you were having entering midlife. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, it's sort of my story is the opposite of clickbait. You know, how did I write a book about the midlife crisis? The answer will not surprise you. I mean, it was exactly coming out of my own experience of crisis around midlife. And speaking of the label and how it informs one's understanding, I reached for it straight away in part because I think it's sort of funny to describe yourself as having a midlife crisis. I enjoyed telling people that. And it was a way of talking about something that was quite difficult with a little bit of levity and irony. Yeah. And I, I mean, for me, you know, the focus of it was on work in a way in that I was a philosopher, I was an academic, and the, the academic career is one in which you you have to get a PhD, and then you have to get a job, and then you have to get tenure, and then you have to get promoted, and you have to publish, and you have to teach another class. And there's this sense of a constant grind of getting things done. And at a certain point, I got tenure, and I sort of stepped back and took a breath and thought, well, what am I doing with my life? And it was very puzzling because I hadn't lost my sense that teaching was worthwhile, thinking about philosophical questions was worthwhile, but there was a sense of hollowness in the in the way I was doing it, that, you know, I'd work really hard to publish this paper. It would come out, then I guess I'd do another. I'd teach these students. They'd graduate, then there'd be more. And there was this sense of very puzzling repetition and futility, even in doing things that seemed worth doing. Yeah. And that struck me as both emotionally and philosophically perplexing. I think this is such a, a fascinating topic, and it's one that I, I've reflected on a lot on this show and also personally, which is that I think that the first quarter to maybe half of life plays out kind of just as you described it. There, there's, there's a roadmap. There's a set of rules and a series of celebrations and rituals in which you pass through exams, uh, graduations, proms, first jobs. But I, I'm i sensing something very familiar that happened to me too. You eventually get to a place where those things begin to kind of hollow out, as you say, or spread out, and time gets a little bit longer, and you're not exactly sure what it is you're aiming for after a while. And that's a very disconcerting and lost place to be. We don't necessarily know how to construct meaning and value when we're not trying to kind of, you know, get uh, get to the next uh, rung on the ladder. I mean, it's a it's a very understandable place to be and so baked into our culture, no? I'm sure that's right. I mean, I, I think this the idea that there are sort of milestones you're supposed to reach and that you structure your life by them and then they sort of run out at a certain point creates a sense of disorientation. And I think it has many dimensions. I mean, in a way, the idea of a midlife crisis is misleading if it suggests there's just one thing. There's sort of many midlife crises. crises. There's the grinding necessity of work, the narrowing of options, there's regret, there's the proximity of mortality, there's the tyranny of projects. And some of this has to do with looking back and thinking, my life has narrowed now. I mean, there, there, there are so many options. I Now it's clear I'm not going to take. There's yeah. so many mistakes I've made so many things that have gone wrong that I'll never be able to take back. And some of it has to do with this sense of the present, the sense that it's one project after another, or that you're just getting done what needs to be done. And it's 
obscure why you're doing any of this or what what the map of the next phase is. And I think all of those things kind of cluster around midlife. So on the one hand, I think there is a kind of cultural script to that. But a lot of this is, I think, generated by the temporal structure of human life, that possibilities do narrow, choices do get made. You do find yourself closer to death. And you do find yourself having either succeeded in some major life projects or failed in major life projects, and then having to come to terms with that. Mm. Yeah. And, and it really feels like you're living oftentimes in a state of preservation, maybe versus creation, right? You, you've suddenly attained these things. And now you're just thinking, how do I hold on to them? But how much value or happiness is there just in the main in the maintenance mode? That's, no, I think that's exactly right. There's this a, a distinction I, I draw in the book that I think is useful here between what I call ameliorative and existential value. So the, there's sort of the value of solving a problem or meeting a need that you'd you'd rather not face, but you know you're putting out fires at work, you're making sure your kids get their homework done, you're making sure food is on the table, you're you're you know there are things that have to get done. You're taking care of your aging parents. Dealing with problems, it really matters. It's really worth doing. But there is something really limited about it. So one of the things that happens in midlife in that kind of sandwich moment dealing with kids and parents is that an enormous amount of your life is devoted to things that are worth doing because they prevent life from being positively bad. They stop things from getting worse or slow down how much they're getting worse. And that is worth doing. But if that's all there was to life life wouldn't be worth living. There has to be something more positive, as you said, creative. And that's something it's easy to lose touch with around midlife. And the opposite of that is what I call existential value. In a way, the things that are worth doing that you don't need to do, they're not solving a problem that you're confronted with. And that is something that we might have to rediscover and sort of find room for around midlife amidst the press of all the stuff that needs to get done to maintain where we are. So where did this examination of midlife take you then? It sounds like you were in the process of recognizing that you had landed just in the place that we're talking about. And being a philosopher, I, I'm curious as to where you began to to move some of these ideas. For me, the biggest thing was the sense that something I really loved had been turned into a succession of projects that... Mm-hmm thinking about philosophy, like having conversations like this one, which are things that really mattered to me, had been structured by professional life. And this is a sort of cultural kind of construction, a kind of social construction into a series of milestones, achievements and failures, publishing essays, kind of outward success or failure. And that that had sort of changed my relation to it. And that was my particular problem. I think though, many people have versions of that. So I mean, you know, if if I was going to invent a midlife crisis for you, it could have the same structure. That's to say, talking about interesting topics, the examined life, that is a, a thing that really matters. But you could get sort of distracted from that by the need to get this episode recorded and mm. get it out and get the next one done. And in a way, you're doing exactly what you want to be doing, but your way of engaging with it is problematic. And I found that that's what was really wrong with me. No, it's true. I mean, I, I, I could use myself as an example here. I, these are the conversations that I love and I live for. 
but I'm I'm not going to pretend like all day I'm just living in this like wonderfully romantic space. I mean, I'm I work needs to get done. I I'm wondering if people are actually listening to the show. There's metrics more and more that measure whether or not people are listening. There's a question if a show will always go on. I mean, all of these things can detract from the reason that we were drawn to them in the beginning. And it's I think also one of the interesting challenges of doing something you quote unquote love following a passion project, which is how that passion can change and feel more formulaic, uh, especially the older you get more into midlife as you've done this thing over and over, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think that structure you're describing has become increasingly pervasive whereby things that matter get turned into projects with achievable end results. So think about the way in which relationships or friendship can now be tracked by the number of likes your Instagram post gets. So you can take something, namely how you interact with friends and turn it into a matter of achievements, projects that can be measured. And I, I think that is a kind of distortion. And, and it can come to seem inevitable. So there's a, a, a kind of distinction I draw that I think is very useful here in between what I call telic activities, this is from the Greek word telos or end, which aim at an end point, projects, what like walking home or getting a promotion or getting married, where there's something you're trying to do. And that it's very natural to focus on those as sources of meaning, but they have a kind of self-defeating structure. When you're engaged in a project with an endpoint, satisfaction is always in the future. You're not there yet. Or once you achieve it, well, it's in the past, that's over. And while you're engaging it in a project, what you're doing is taking something meaningful and trying to finish it. It's like you're trying to take this source of meaning and get rid of it, get it mm. out of your life. And there's something really perverse about that. And it's easy to feel like everything that matters is a project, is a kind of achievable in that way. But actually, not all activities that matter are like that. And there are also what I call atelic activities that don't have an endpoint. So it might be talking to people about the examined life. There's no particular endpoint at which you're sort of do done with that. It's just an ongoing life process or parenting. There's all kinds of things you have to do, but parenting is not a project that ends at some point. It's an ongoing relationship. And those kinds of activities, when you focus on them, these atelic process-like activities, you find that satisfaction isn't deferred to the future or archived in the past. If you want to be talking about the examined life, well, you're doing it right now. There's nothing more. You don't have to wait. It's this. It's mm. right here. And your engagement with those things doesn't exhaust them or sort of expel them from your life. And so for me, the kind of biggest shift was taking what I was doing and changing my orientation towards it so that I was instead of, you know, engaging with philosophy, thinking about philosophical questions in order to publish another essay or achieve some other outcome. Instead, thinking, well, yeah, I'm going to write essays, I'm going to teach classes, but the point of that is really to be engaged in talking philosophy with people, thinking about philosophical questions. And I think that same shift could happen in parenting or in many different walks of life. And if I have this right, I mean, the roots of this idea, which, which are very powerful, go back hundreds, if not thousands of years. I mean, this is very uh, Aristotelian. Uh, can you just talk about maybe some of the Greek roots of some of this thought? Yeah, absolutely. So in, in the, the Nicomachean Ethics, this is Aristotle's sort of great, one of his great works in, in moral philosophy. 
he sort of applies a distinction between what he calls kinesis or sort of which is like the projects getting things done and energia with these activities that don't have an endpoint and one of his observations there is that living well is in a way a process it's not like there's an endpoint to which you're sort of done like i've lived well now i guess that's you know what I, what will i do next it's yeah. an ongoing process that you engage with and so in a way the, the things that really matter in life, how you live, have to have this process-like structure. This, they're more pro process than project, and so that idea is is one that he, I, I think, sort of develops in his ethical thought. But it's also present in Eastern philosophy as well as in Aristotle. So you get it most uh, clearly, I think, in the Bhagavad Gita. There's a, a point at which Krishna, the god, is talking to Arjuna before battle and says, your authority is in action alone and never in its fruits. Motive should never be in the fruits of action, nor should you cling to inaction. Abiding in yoga, engage in actions, let mm -hmm. go of clinging and let fulfillment and frustration be the same. And it's very puzzling. It's sort of, well, don't focus on action, but engage in actions. Let clinging and fulfillment let go of clinging and let fulfillment and frustration be the same. What could this mean? And I think the idea is precisely that it's not that you're supposed to stop doing anything. It's that the way of doing it in which you're focusing on the process of what you're doing, less on the outcome, is a kind of shift in which you're liberated from success and failure to some extent. You're liberated from this sense of repetition and futility in one project after another. So I think that I, the idea comes up in these different traditions. And it is a form of sort of philosophical interpretation of the, the slogan about living in the present. It's a way of understanding what living in the present might be because these atelic activities where there isn't a kind of endpoint in the future you're aiming at are ones that insofar as you're engaging in them, you're fully realizing those activities. You're fully doing what matters in the present moment. Mm. And I think there's real wisdom in that. Yeah. This is something I've felt uh, a lot personally. I've, I've talked about it a bit on the program, but I'm I'm in this process of of, of training for what is called an Ironman race, and mm -hmm. it's it's the distances are so crazy and outlandish that uh, in many ways I'll never be able to compete uh, at the full distance or win a race or win my age category. It's it, that's not the point, but it's hit me the amount of training and time that's gone into it. I, I went into it initially thinking it's okay. You're just doing this for the race. You're, you're going to, it's all about getting through that moment and, you know, completing it in less than 12 hours. But, you know, it's really changed in the sense that I've realized I've committed so much of my life now to the process of it, to seeing my body change, to falling in love with the different disciplines, to the social interactions it's created to the mental effort and trying to be good at multiple things that at this point I've understood for me, it's a lifestyle. It's a way of being and that the race is kind of superfluous when it does happen in October. And I think that these big goals can sometimes be a starting point to get us to the rediscovery of process, right? That um, maybe they're the kick in the butt we need to get out the door, but the mind shift has to change at a certain point, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, I love that example. It says the, the shift from thinking I'm training in order to do well in this race. Right. So you're sort of to thinking 
I'm going to sign up for the race because otherwise, you know, I need to have some structure. But the point of this is to be a certain <laughs> engaged in a certain kind of lifestyle. I mean, right. I think that example brings out in a kind of microcosm both the shift from telic to atelic activities, from focusing on projects to focusing on the ongoing engagement, and the shift from ameliorative to existential values. Because in a way, what hobbies like that exemplify most vividly, and the reason why, in a way, hobbies like that have a kind of profound significance for our lives, is that they're the paradigms of things that are worth doing and that we value that are not answering some need or solving some problem. They're, they're things you do, but you don't need to do. And I think that recognizing that, sort of recognizing the value of that is a way of recognizing why life is worth living at all and feel, feeling like life isn't just a bunch of problems that you've you've got to try and neutralize, but ha has something positive to, to offer. I guess it's important also for for us to acknowledge that that we're two men having this conversation, right? Maybe around the same age. But I, I wonder how we can also take kind of a female perspective into this as well. The acknowledgement that uh, biology can feel very different, the pressures to uh, to have children, or I think the kind of the horrible cultural sense that as a woman ages, she becomes less worthy or beautiful in the world, and that that can have you know a big impact on what it means to go through midlife. I, I'm just curious if there's if there's some of that perspective you thought about, or if or if kind of you think a lot of the stuff falls under a similar category. I think it's mixed. I mean, on the one hand, I think it's definitely true that the cultural stereotype now is, as I said, of the you know a man buying a Ferrari and leaving his wife, and it's a stereotype that is in a way self-serving. It's sort of so it's, it's an excuse for bad behavior, and uh, mm. it, that 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 is a kind of gendered phenomenon. It's the history of that, though, is sort of complicated because if you go back to one of the sort of early classics in the 1970s, writing about the midlife crisis, Gail Sheehy's book *Passages*, she gives as much time to women as men, and she thinks she sort of acknowledges the points you're making that the kind of shape of the midlife crisis, the kind of reassessment around midlife, might be different for men and women. She was writing in the 70s, where a lot of women in the U.S. didn't have college degrees, and they were they were uh, homemakers and the, the children leaving home was a kind of structural kind of break around around midlife. Some of that has changed, but I, I, it's also true that the evidence that sort of in the last 10, 15 years, economists have provided suggests that the sort of general dip in the U-curve is something that happens for for men and women. So mm. I, I think it, it I, I think you're right that there are, there are kind of bound to be differences in people's experience but i think that and it's it's very hard to generalize about that but i i think the the main thing to push back against here is the kind of stereotype that this is a a, a kind of thing that men go through and not a kind of reassessment of life that every human being is in a position to is likely to be in a position to make and it's going to take a different form for each of us individually and maybe there are patterns to that but uh i yeah i i kind of think the the use of this as a kind of excuse for men's bad behavior is the sort of how that became the stereotype given the way thinking about the midlife crisis originated how women sort of dropped out of the picture is an interesting 
story in which I'm sure forces of sexism and misogyny sort of played their played their part. Well, bringing this back just to your your own life experience, I, I it sounds to me that I mean you you went through a, a tremendous amount of change in thinking about this, and and I wonder how you feel about where you are now and how you engage with activity or your life. And, and if these concepts that we've been talking about ultimately were ones that, that, were, that were helpful to you. The answer is yes. I mean, this stuff was helpful to me and, and that's sort of why I wrote, a, wrote the book. I mean, I, I would say two things about, about it. One is, I, you know, in terms of my daily life, a kind of big shift was trying to be more atelic, less goal-oriented, more process-oriented. And you know, meditation has played a role in that as in mm. sort of trying to get as a kind of daily practice of getting myself to be able to detach from the future and sort of appreciate and just focus on what's happening right now. So that's one kind of change. But the, the other thing I would say is, as I said earlier, I kind of wrote this book thinking, I'm not going to make major changes in my life. So how do I become okay with that? And in a way, the, the sort of biggest surprise to me was that I thought I would just write this one, you know, I'd written academic books. This was supposed to be, Midlife was a book for a general audience. And I thought, I'll do that. And it's probably the only time I'll ever do it. And I'll just go back to my life as an academic. And to some extent, I've gone back to being an academic. But I, I think the biggest change is that I sort of realized in the course of doing this, that I really love writing in this different mode, writing for an audience that's not the small audience of academic specialists, but trying to communicate with a wider range of people about ideas that I think are really important and interesting. And so the way my life has shifted has really been has been that. So I've done a lot more writing for wider audiences. I have a new book coming out, Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way, that's coming out in, in October that's about sort of how to think what philosophical reflection on the good life will be like if it started from the fact that really the problem it's reflection on the bad life. It starts mm. with the fact that mostly when we're dealing, we're wondering how am I going to live? The problem is not what's the most awesome way I could live. It's how am I going to deal with this problem or adversity or difficulty or challenge in life? And spending more of my time thinking about writing for people who are not academics, that has really opened, has really been a big change for me and has been a true source of, of pleasure and, and, uh, fascination. Yeah. And, and I, I just want to make a point of emphasizing that because I think it, it's an important story that, that speaks to something larger, which is, I think, I don't know, my sense is growing older, sometimes we feel a little bit more conservative in how we make choices or in our self-belief that we can change or that we can rediscover things and that oftentimes it's it's someone like yourself saying, I'm just going to try and do it a little bit differently. I'm going to try this is, is one that can really open one's life in, when we, in ways that we can't really imagine when we start. That's definitely my experience. It was, it's sort of exactly what I didn't expect in writing Midlife, which was I thought I would put this to bed and then go back to my previous life unchanged. And I was wrong about that. And I think that's definitely something I learned from the experience of, of writing the book. Well, as we begin to, to close out, I, I wonder if there are any other points that we didn't get to or people in your journey that helped you or writers or just final inspirations that were kind of instrumental, both in the process of this book and in any changes you made yourself? There's so many dimensions to this. It's hard to, to touch on everything. I mean, I think one thing we, we haven't really got to grips with in this conversation that's hard to get to grips with is the kind of regret that isn't just about 
the inevitable missing out on options, but the kind of regret in which something really has gone terribly wrong. You've done something mm. that you really wish you hadn't or something awful has happened to you. And there's no denying that it could have gone better. And I, I, that that's a form of regret that I think, again, philosophy has something to say about. And I, a lot of that has to do with, I think, attachment to particulars, sort of recognizing the ways in which the particular shape your life actually takes is dependent on, always dependent on, the particular kinds of things that happen, including the terrible things. And so the most, the clearest case of this is when you look back and realize that something bad happened, but you wouldn't have met your partner otherwise, you wouldn't have had the kid, someone you love wouldn't even exist otherwise. But I think more generally, recognizing the ways in which sort of the particular things you're attached to in life depend often on some of the terrible things you look back on is a way to reframe those things. I think doesn't make everything all right, but does give a kind of, of sort of consolation in which one can at least achieve, as, as it were, kind of ambivalence about some of the things that have been have been difficult in life. Yeah. And that's a, a kind of a, a kind of dimension that I wouldn't want to downplay. No, I think that's really important. I mean, I see this on this show or my work as a therapist. I mean, that that trauma can turn one's life around in very hard and dark and negative ways. But for some, it's probably the most important thing they had to overcome and informs the rest of their life as an ally, as a guide, as a body of work, as the reason they ended up somewhere in a much more positive place. So I think that's a, it's a reframe that actually does play out quite commonly around us. Yeah, and I think that's right. And I think I think the way you put it strikes me as exactly right, which is sometimes like yeah, yes, I think this is a, try, a right. way to try to reframe things. And sometimes you just think, no, that that's that was uh, unmitigatedly bad, and yeah. uh, that that happens too. But but I think it, this sort of sense of of looking at the way in which something bad in your life made possible all kinds of other things to which you're attached and you wouldn't wish away can can sort of you know, mitigate the, the the kind of the sting somewhat. Well, Kieran Seti, I, I if I if I may say, this has felt like a very atelic conversation. I've just been lost in it and enjoying it. So I think maybe we both did our job today. Would you agree with me? I, I hope that's true. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and and thanks so much for for inviting me to do this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Kieran Setia is professor of philosophy in the Department of Linguistics and Philosophy at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and the author of Midlife: A Philosophical Guide. Once again, I I, I love the conversation, and and we appreciate the time. Thanks for having me. When we come back, sailing off into the sunset or going out with a bang, we'll hear how different people have navigated their twilight years, especially artists. The great essayist Jeff Dyer joins us for the second half of the show coming up after this short break. And a quick note about this segment you just heard. We got the idea to interview Kieran Setia from a member of our Facebook page, JC Kangilla. This is a reminder that we're always looking for new good ideas, and some of these ideas will end up on the show. So if you haven't done so yet, please join us on our new page and help us grow the Life Examined community. It's an open forum to share ideas, interact with the content, and go behind the scenes of the show. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. Oh, and JC, thanks again for the tip. I love the interview. We'll be back in a moment. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled 
This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car. Already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com slash cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Kieran Setia, professor at Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the author of Midlife, a Philosophical Guide, explain his own struggles with midlife and how the process of writing this book profoundly changed him in ways he didn't expect. So why do we think that our best and most successful years are defined by youth? Can flourishing still happen at the tail end of our lives? And how do we make sense of those artists who were the one-hit wonders early on and then fell apart later in their life? Joining me next is Jeff Dyer, writer and author most recently of The Last Days of Roger Federer and Other Endings. Dyer has written on a wide range of topics, and his older books include But Beautiful, a book about jazz, Out of Sheer Rage, In the Shadow of D.H. Lawrence, and Yoga for People Who Can't Be Bothered to Do It. Jeff Dyer is originally from the UK, but now lives in Los Angeles, and it's a pleasure to have him on Life Examined. Welcome. Oh, thank you, Jonathan. My pleasure. You and I both have an interest in a, a philosopher who people think is probably fairly depressing and dour, but I, I tend to love, who is uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. And and even though your book references Roger Federer, actually, I think there's a bigger uh, person in the background looming who is Nietzsche. And for our listeners who haven't read much of him or this idea of the eternal return, I wonder if you could tell us who he was and why why you're interested in him. Yes, absolutely. Well, there is a kind of Roger Federer connection, uh, Basel, you know, mm. which is where Nietzsche was employed as a for a while as a as a philologist, and then he, um, for various reasons, he abandoned that uh, life of being a boring philologist and became this kind of vagabond, a kind of renegade in every way, um, wandering around Europe with no institutional affiliation. Uh, for a while, he was a great admirer of Wagner's, became a great uh, disciple and promoter of Wagner's music. And as nearly always happens when that occurs, he then split with Wagner and uh, embarks on this uh, really increasingly lonely life of, um, you know, wandering around from hotel to hotel, uh, writing these books of earth-shaking importance, which weirdly, from his point of view, uh, receive absolutely no uh, acclaim or nobody even notices them. And at some stage, he hits upon what he thinks is his most important idea, the eternal recurrence, which professional philosophers have been very troubled by. It's such a weird idea. But because I lack any training in philosophy, I took to it like a duck to water. And the idea is very simple. I mean, I should say that when, uh, you know, Nietzsche and the eternal return, that's not to say that he was some kind of, uh, you know, Djokovic-like figure who could always return the ball back, you know, there's none of that. But it's his idea that um, this life, as we lead it, will be lived over and over, now and throughout all eternity. So the idea is that it's um, by the fact that we're condemned to living this, this life, unchanged over and over forever what that does is it really emphasizes the importance of this one life I mean, if you think of the you know various ideas of the afterlife 
either the Christian afterlife where we're all, you know, in either heaven or hell, that relegates the importance of what happens in this life. And then there's this kind of some idea of, um, you know, of karma and being resurrected into, you know, a different species or something like that. But no, we're condemned by the eternal recurrence to living this one life over and over. And the first time, and Nietzsche sort of comes out with different versions of this, but the, the first mention of it is in his book, The Gay Science, when he says something like, you know, what if someone said to you, um, this life you'll live over and over with all its humiliations and pains and disappointments. Uh, wouldn't, you know, wouldn't that be a terrible idea? Then he says, but have you ever had a moment in your life that's so wonderful you'd say to the person who told you this, you are a god and I've never heard anything more divine. And the idea there, which is so crucial to Nietzsche, is that these moments, these peak experiences, are enough to um, justify and render tolerable all of those terrible things that happened. And goodness knows, uh, Nietzsche suffered more than his fair share of disappointments, physical ailments. And then rather tragically, um, I write about this in the book, uh, a famous episode when he uh, is in Turin and is he's starting to lose his mind and according to um, sort of legend he sees a, a taxi driver beating his horse and throws his arms around the neck of this poor suffering horse uh, and from that moment on never regains his sanity and then spends the last 10 years of his life as a kind of um, oh as a virtual zombie cared for by his mother and sister who he hated, he said no aspect of the eternal recurrence was more terrible than the thought of having to encounter his mm. sister again. Wow. How did you run with this idea? Or maybe what, what was the importance for you as you began to think about a much larger writing project and how some of these themes would intertwine with your own thoughts? Mm, yeah. Um, so I'd been interested for a while in this idea of last works because um, obviously a great deal of work has been done on late style and the classic thing of late style it's it's Beethoven let's say you know Beethoven's last quartets and piano sonatas uh, you know he did those at the end of his life so for Beethoven his last works and his late works are the same but uh, we don't have to think very much before we come across examples of people whose last works are not necessarily their late works. Uh, we can think of writers who, for various reasons, uh, give up after publishing one book, say, or, um, you know, I'd, I'd start with, the book begins with me talking about the way that the end by the doors is the last track on their very first album. And then, of course, we're all familiar with this thing of athletes whose... Um, whose lives, sporting lives, typically are over by the time they're 35. So, you know, you might well, you could easily, we, you know, we think of Bjorn Borg, you know, his last important tennis matches took place when he was in, in his 20s. So I had various um, sort of thoughts swirling around about when you, uh, you know, when the end begins. And I thought that Roger Federer was such a good focus for this because, you know, there he is at the peak of his game, um, and people start talking about, you know, when is he, when is he going to retire? And he keeps keeps playing tennis, um, even when do you, you know it, it seems that he so enjoyed playing tennis that it 
he came to terms with uh, that period when he was not winning any grand slams and so why should he stop doing this thing that he he liked doing so much um, and basically what happens in the book is that I, I consider all of these kind of matters and it's interspersed with uh, stuff about my own sense, my own sense of aging and my uh, my less than glorious tennis career approaching its uh, its twilight years. Yeah. And talk to me about the significance or your interest in this idea of a final work, the the last the last thing that a, a writer or a musician or an athlete, in that case, the game that's played. Why Why do you find that so interesting or something so worthy of exploration? Hmm. I think it's because uh, you never quite know when it's going to come. I mean, let's go back. We were talking about, let's go back to Beethoven. You know, with Beethoven, yes, there's a real sense of his life coming to an end and his exploration of the possibilities of music you know being uh, being advanced so far okay so that's that there it is you know things are, are coming to an end there but then we can if we think of say a photographer that i'm very interested in gary winogrand who became quite suddenly ill um and at that point uh when when he died it turned out that he'd taken an awful lot of photographs he was living in los angeles taking an awful lot of photographs out on the street um, and he'd stopped making exhibition prints, he'd stopped making studio prints, he'd stopped making contact sheets, he'd stopped even developing the film and it turned out that uh, at the time of his death there were some huge astronomical number of of uh, exposures that he'd not uh, not even seen. So there's an example of somebody who's last works actually occurred in what should have been the sort of middle of his career. Um, you could say something similar maybe about John Coltrane, those last works of his. You know, they're the last works we have, but there's no real sense that Coltrane was there. Anything, you know, I feel that those the last recordings that we have of Coltrane uh, mark a, a possible transition phase as opposed to a, a, a terminal phase. Uh, and then we can also think of examples of people who, um, you know, their last works come at a really uh, tragically uh, early age, you know, before they've even properly uh, got to any kind of maturity. The Romantic Poets would be the, uh, the, the classic example of that, although we can also think of, uh, say, a photographer such as uh, Francesca Woodman. Mm. So the last things can crop up at any moment in, 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 in a person's life. And uh, for most of us, we, we don't know, uh, we don't know, when that is coming. There is this phenomenon that you write about, and I think you, you talk about Jack Kerouac as a very interesting example. He produced On the Road, which would have been kind of early to mid-career for him, but then his decline after that book, you know, this book that was comprised of spontaneity and of, of pure energy in life, and then, then after that, we don't really see anything like it again. And and there's also the great examples you mentioned, certain poets, I think of Rambeau or those that, that died so young, we don't know where their work could have gone. But I think we really grapple with these different subjects and when the brilliance occurs and when it fades and all, all of that stuff to me seems like really rich stuff to think about. Yes, I find. I mean, I find that the, the, there's sort of several ways of of looking at uh, Kerak is such an interesting example. Uh, on the road, I believe is a 
that remains a great book. It's funny, it's a funny book in that uh, it's one of those books which you're meant to grow out of. You read it when you're 20 or whatever and you're so intoxicated by it and then you grow, ah, I'm, I'm 63 now and I'm still waiting to grow out of it. Um, it, it, it. It gets richer and richer for me whenever I reread it. But yeah, I'm glad you've mentioned Kerouac because I think uh, that he, he illustrates a really important point, which is that the value of a life can't be assessed chronologically. That is to say, it's not like the only bit that matters is the last bit, because if that were the case, then, well, we would all arrange our lives very, very differently. It seems to me that Kerouac's is a really heroic life in that uh, he stakes everything on, on the road. There's a uh, quite famous exchange where I think it's been rejected by on the road has been rejected by a publisher and he writes you know I know what what will be what will happen eventually on the road will be published with a few changes and a few cuts and it will duly take its place as one of the great uh, you know great uh, first great uh, uh, American novels of this time and there's a long wait for it to get published um, and uh, but it is eventually published and it's uh, it is the the triumph that uh, that Kerouac hoped for, and then um, uh, he becomes sort of imprisoned by this uh, idea of spontaneous prose. Although actually, it's quite interesting as we look more closely at the composition of On the Road, we realise that he did revise it quite a lot. He revised it in order to make it more spontaneous, interestingly. Mm. But yeah, then Kerouac becomes both a, a celebrity and a kind of alcoholic buffoon. And we can, you know, we've all enjoyed watching that footage of him being sort of drunk on various talk shows. But nothing that happens in those boozy, lonely, rather sad uh, later years of his life, and he dies very young, by the way. Nothing invalidates the triumph. The uh, uh, the, the the publication of On the Road, I think, was uh, important enough that it meant he was indemnified against ever making or having made a mistake in his life. Mm. Um, and again, it's uh, that's a, a life of a writer which is rather similar to that of a, an athlete. So I mentioned uh, immediately after the Kerouac section this glimpse that I had of Boris Becker coming out of a restroom on just outside Centre Court at Wimbledon with his terrible hip troubles. And this was when he was just about beginning um, his bankruptcy troubles, which have meant that it, as we speak, he's, he's in jail in England. And, you know, it's easy to view Becker as a sort of rather ridiculous figure. But, you know, the fact is he'd won Wimbledon three times by the time he was about 22 or 23. That is a great life. Mm. So to go back to where I had to return to it, return eternally to what I said, the value of a life can't be assessed chronologically. Let me see if I can articulate this. There, there seems in my mind to be almost two discussions. One is what the reader or the consumer or the public asks. And then the other one is what does the writer ask of herself or himself in terms of what they want to do with their time or their output? Mm -hmm. Because the public might say this is no longer relevant or we're no longer interested. But the artist or the writer or the athlete, in my mind, has the ability to say, I'm going to do this no matter what, because this is what gives me life. This is what makes me happy. It's the activity alone. I mean, we talk a lot about happiness on this program, and it seems that the answer falls somewhere on the idea of being lost in that activity of some kind. Do you, does some of this make sense? 
Oh, it does. Absolutely. Although, um, yes, and I'm sort of conscious of this, really, that we sometimes have this idea that uh, uh, a writer will, or artist of any kind, will achieve some kind of commercial success doing something, and then he or she will be able to have a have have the freedom to do their own thing right. well that can happen but sometimes it doesn't because it turns out that there's a lot of pressure that comes with commercial success uh, and also uh, people can get addicted to 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 to, to that kind of uh, uh, commercially successful work I mean my own case I think is a is a quite interesting one that um, the complete failure of my early books uh, really meant that the stakes were so low that I was able to do uh, what I liked. And similarly with Nietzsche, to bring it back to where we started, you know, Nietzsche's failure as a writer was was absolute. And, uh, you know, he just kept, kept doing this um, and he became gradually, you know, convinced, more and more convinced that the way the world was ignoring his work was a greater and greater sign of how urgently it was needed mm. uh, and of course you could it's not entirely surprising that you, you know he he goes uh, he goes nuts like that but um you know in my case for example i know that normally people draw up uh, proposals for non-fiction books but uh, i felt that the the way for me to to do things it's better if i just write the books and then hope somebody will take pity on me and publish them because then also the book is uh, exactly as i as i as i want it to be mm. uh, and um yeah that that sort of suits suits me uh rather well it's the way that i've been able to publish what uh what on the basis of a proposal would sound like an unpublishable book I'm just thinking again of certain writers or folks at the end of their life that almost seem to turn into more spiritual figures. Like I think of uh, Tolstoy and the death of Ivan Ilyich or mm. other folks or a, a lot of T.S. Eliot becoming more Catholic or so many other British writers becoming Catholic at the end of their lives. I, I'm just, I'm, I wonder what happens in, in the psyche as one ages and suddenly these questions of God and life and spirituality and mortality become more present. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Of course, Tolstoy's death of Ibn Illich is such a classic example of that. I have a great fondness for that film version of, of that book, Ivan's XTC, uh, which you might remember from a few years ago about a sort of, I think, a Hollywood agent whose life is all sort of coke and, and hookers. And then in an Ivan Illich-like way, he's faced with the, the kind of futility of his life when he, when it turns out his time, he, he's getting ill. Um, but yeah, there's, uh, yeah, of course. So one is, um, uh, one, one is, as one gets older, one is sort of confronted with these things. But I have a a great, great admiration for those last essays of Christopher Hitchens, a writer that I feel uh, ambiguously about for most of the time, but I very much admired his absolute rejection of any kind of uh, any kind of consolation and his uh, his 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 commitment to the idea that yeah, it's this life, this is the only one that that counts, and there's not going to be any any redemption or any helping hand in the afterlife. I find that uh, I find that's all the the affirmation 
I need. And of course, it's a very Nietzschean kind of affirmation. I've been speaking with Jeff Dyer. He's the author of The Last Days of Roger Federer and Other Endings. Jeff, I enjoyed it so much. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. All right, that's all for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can connect with me on Instagram at Jonathan W. Bastian, and you can find a link to our archives online at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. Have a wonderful day, and we'll see you next week. Take care.